the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast camped at the crossroads of Christian faith and geek culture. I'm glad to be back in the saddle with my good friends, Brian and Mike. Guys, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Can't complain. I missed you, James. I'm glad you're back. (laughs) I missed you guys as well. I've said this off podcast, but I'm going to say it here officially for the record, because everything we say on here is, you know, for the record. Uh, <laughs> it, will be held against us in a court of law. Oh, yes. Help us. <laughs> you guys did a great episode with our guest, uh, Ken Monshine. It was fantastic to listen to. And uh, thanks for coming for me at a uh, very difficult time. Friends, uh, for those who don't know, uh, about the time that we were supposed to be recording the last episode uh, with Dr. Ken Monshine, uh, that was a few days after that freeze had hit pretty much the entire country and including Texas. Uh, The difference between the rest of the country and Texas is that Texas is not built for that type of cold, Mm -hmm. and neither was my house because uh, when the cold hit, a pipe froze in my attic and uh broke so much of my house got flooded and i have been dealing with the aftermath ever since but the good news is the end is near as of the recording of this podcast most of the repair work is done and uh, we've been staying with some some incredible friends who have been letting us occupy their house literally occupy like we have just moved in we're like british soldiers saying hello greetings we're going to billet 10 of us in your small room and (laughs) They've allowed us to hunker down with them these past six weeks. And uh, this entire ordeal has taught me two very important lessons. Number one, that good friends are worth their weight in gold. The second thing is that I have way too much crap. (laughs) (laughs) I found this out as I was putting most of it in boxes to put in my garage. So the old flooring could be taken out and repair work done. And I I can't count the number of times I've taken stuff to a dumpster or the Goodwill in the past few weeks. I mean, Marie Kondo has got nothing on me. I'm like, keep, keep, throw, throw away, throw away, give away, give away, throw away, throw away, throw away. Just bags and bags of stuff made it out to the trash cans. And And I'm going to move back in. Your house is going to feel cavernous. Oh, trust me, it's not. I'm... (laughs) (laughs) All of the stuff that's in boxes in the garage, which is pretty much everything I own... It's going to be gone through once again, and even more stuff is is getting gone. I'm and just imagining Brian trying to help you out, showing up to your door like, oh, these magic cards, do they not spark joy? <laughs> <laughs> Here, James, say thank you to them and give them away. I'll just <laughs> put them in my car. <laughs> I'd be embarrassed if Brian got a hold of my magic collection. He'd be like, you had these cards and you didn't do anything with them? <laughs> Like, what like, is this Brian, black I... lotus? Whoa, whoa, okay. Black I... lotus is going in my pocket. I don't have a black... I do have a bird of paradise somewhere. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. And I remember at the tournament, I got it. Someone's like, dude, I'll give you cash for that. I'm like, ah, no. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay, I don't speak magic. What, is, what does the bird of paradise do? Uh, it costs only one mana to play, and it generates uh, one mana of any color 
So it accelerates your ability to develop your board and gives you more flexibility. Mm -hmm. And if I recall, you don't have to spend any mana to activate its ability. You just tap it, correct? Right, yeah. Oh, that sounds wild. What is the value of the bird of paradise right now? Value is such a subjective term. <laughs> what is some poor fool willing to pay for it on eBay? $250. Oh, my. Oh, that's for a signed one. Oh, okay. I was about to say, really? <laughs> so the <laughs> like, bird actually dude. signed it? How does it get the pen in its talons? <laughs> it's a very talented bird. I guess. It grips it, grips it by the husk. <laughs> The question we ask over and over again on the Geek at Arms podcast, how did we get here? I am not sure. <laughs> Have we even opened the show yet? <laughs> I think we've opened the show. Yeah, we've opened the show. But I think this is where one of us says, well, that should about take us to geek out. Thanks for doing so, did. Mike. Well done. You're welcome. You, got, you, you don't pay me the big bucks for nothing. Note to self, don't pay Mike. Pay Mike, yeah, good call. <laughs> Very good call. Well, uh, according to our show notes, which we you know, re reference so often, it looks like I'm going first by two-thirds majority. Uh, so I had a bunch of stuff for last month's Geek Out, and essentially I'm just going to kind of toss that aside because of what I've been doing lately, which for the most part the last six weeks, I've been watching a lot of the TV show MASH. Uh, oh, such a good show. Yeah, it's kind of my it's my comfort food TV show. When I'm when I'm stressed or when I need to just really relax and just not think, I'll put on a few episodes of Mash. All of the seasons are available on Hulu. I started back in season one, and I, somehow I realized there was actually a good portion of season one and two I hadn't seen yet. Huh. And yeah, it kind of surprised me. So I got to see more of uh, of Henry Blake, uh, the first CEO in the first three seasons. And I've just watched a little bit more here and there. And uh, it's been great. Like I said, everyone's got a, a TV shows or movies or music that they go to. It brings them comfort. It brings them peace and a bit of tranquility. And for me, that's MASH. Thankful I've been able to watch that. The latest Disney animated movie came out recently, Raya and the Last Dragon. I and think that's good. It was pretty fun. Uh, I took my daughter to it. Because we have a local theater that I read what they were doing for uh, what precautions that they were taking for COVID and how they cleaned and sanitized the theaters and how they were spacing their seats out. And I was pretty happy with that. And so we went still masked up, of course, and we saw it and it was fun. Uh, it's one of the few Disney movies that involves a princess where there was no singing. There was no song. She didn't break out in song every every five minutes. I'm like, hey, I like this. It's, it's nice. And uh, good message. I felt like it was a little forced, but um, it's Disney. It's Disney. It yeah, <laughs> it, it got a little heavy handed in some places, but, you know, still a beautiful movie to watch. And what else have I been doing? Um, oh, the friends who have let us stay with them. They actually have an HBO Max subscription. Ooh, yeah. So it's actually made me I've never had any interest in anything involving HBO, but <laughs> Uh, I am, for the first time ever, am tempted because they have all of the Warner Brothers catalog, uh, which means all the Warner Brothers movies, uh, cartoons. Oh, you got Looney Tunes? All the seasons of the classic oh, Looney Tunes. All of it. And the the kids and I all love Looney Tunes. And some like early old school Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck 
and Porky Pig and to sit on the couch and my kids watch this and just cackle. Just just makes me so happy. But in addition to that, Joy and I hadn't seen the Aquaman movie with Jason Momoa. So we watched that uh, with our friends. And over the past few days, I have uh, watched the Snyder Cut of the Justice League. And it's it's taken me a few days because the movie is four bloody hours long. <laughs> See, it's funny. That's the way that my daughter and I watched Dune, even though that's a much shorter film. But do go on. <laughs> um, Dune's shorter? It sure didn't feel that way. <laughs> yeah. It's all about perception. <laughs> but uh, I enjoyed it. I do think it told a more cohesive story than the 2017 Joss Whedon offering. It did offer more in the ways of character development and plot progression. But then again, if you can't tell a more cohesive story and progress the plot and have character development in four hours, then really, what are you doing with yourself? Are you in years of editing? Yes. I mean, are you really in the right career if it takes you that long to do that? So I don't uh, know. Ask Peter Jackson. (laughs) <laughs> Shots fired. i'll forgive him uh, well i'll halfway forgive peter jackson because i'm still trying to figure out why you took one book and put it out over three movies okay look i'm gonna say this i have absolutely zero criticisms for the five armies movie of the hobbit i have i have zero bad things to say about the third film did you see it no <laughs> That's what we thought. <laughs> I saw the second one. I was good. Like, I'm done. You're like, I'm out. So, yeah, it was a fun movie to watch, but I'm still not convinced that Zack Snyder was the right person to bring the DC universe to the screen, stylistically speaking. Mm-hmm. But that's my personal belief. Now, why not and, choose somebody who shoots only in monochrome for four color comics? Yeah. <laughs> Like, there's three colors you're not using, dude. Come on. <laughs> Every time I saw Batman fighting, I expected him to be kicking a bad guy off of the top of a building, you know, into an alleyway yelling, this is Gotham! <laughs> oh, all right. So the last bit of geek out is something that has not happened yet as of this recording, but I am so looking forward to Godzilla versus Kong. Yeah, it's a, a lot of my movie. friends are looking for that. I've been waiting for it, and then I waited longer. I waited even more, and then I waited even more because they've kept pushing it back. <laughs> it was supposed to have been out around this time last year, but you know, it it's one of the many number of things that you could say because COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm having to keep six feet of distance between both of those monsters during the restrictions. It just does not give the same sort of impact. it puts godzilla at a distinct advantage doesn't it yes it does godzilla is definitely going to be coming out ahead on this one what's king kong doing he's squatted down he's he's flinging poo he's flinging poo ladies and gentlemen (laughs) (laughs) oh the humanity (laughs) i thought you were gonna go with rolling barrels but no no here here we go (laughs) i might take this part out because who really aren't we above potty humor (laughs) I did not get that memo. <laughs> um, uh, the movie has already come out in China. It's made $25 million, which you would think like is not a lot for a big-budget monster movie. But considering the times we live in, that's actually really good. 
Uh, early reviews have been great. And keeping in mind that this is a movie that is exactly what it says on the tin. It's two giant monsters fighting. And that's all it should be. That's you're, right. You're not coming to this movie for character development. You're not coming for Oscar-winning drama. You're not coming for a romance subplot. I am going to jump in here because <laughs> I, what I want out of this film is, you know, there's going to be a there's going to be a fight at some point. Somebody's going to have to make them kiss and make up, and. That's that. That's the monster movie I want to see. Yeah, th there's movie posters that I've seen. They're fan posters, probably not studio approved. They want one question answered: Will they kiss? <laughs> well, yes, but due to <laughs> Godzilla's atomic breath, King Kong's going to get one whiff of it. Offer that's... Godzilla a Chrysler-sized Tic Tac. Tic -tac. Godzilla's going to become offended and is going to march back to the ocean through tokyo well, that was oh well can't spoilers can't, man come on yeah geez <laughs> oh, oh come on like that hasn't been the plot of every other godzilla movie for the past 70 years <laughs> and besides this is I think just... i've been watching the wrong godzilla movies i don't remember <laughs> there's, there's got to be somebody oh who's, come on who's... there's been t there's been japanese tanks and planes been shooting them at godzilla for decades <laughs> Okay, you thought those were bullets corrected. and mortars. No, those were all minty, fresh refreshment. I'm thinking somewhere out there, somebody has got to be making puppet shows of 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 monster movie rom coms somewhere now. I mean, it, if if not, I don't know. We can we need to get a Kickstarter for that. Come for the giant monster fights. Stay for the giant monster fights. <laughs> that's that's what a good Godzilla movie should be. Right. So I will give a more in depth review of that next episode but it will probably be exactly what i just said come for the giant monster fight stay for the giant <laughs> monster fight 10 out of 10 stars and that's going to wrap it up for my geek out well i'll go next then uh way back in episode three of this podcast we were talking about uh, the oculus rift um and the various problems that some people might have specifically the that uh conflict between where your eyes are focused and where they're like crossing to determine how far away something is. And I, I mentioned then that there was a technology called light field, which I thought in five to seven years from that time that it was going to start making its way into consumer markets and would revolutionize VR, let people who like, can't even watch 3D movies, it would fix it for them. Maybe it would give enough uh, visual comfort for somebody like you, James, to be able to watch without uh, migraines. Mm -hmm. And I learned this week that there's a company... I don't know if the name is C-Real or Creel. It's all just in caps, C-R-E-A-L. It's cereal. Cereal. It could be that too. Yeah. It has <laughs> a lot of shrimp in it. So it's, you know, that's oh. okay. <laughs> um, well, there's a not very evergreen joke. <laughs> probably already out of date. It probably is. Yeah. <laughs> By the time this is published, no one will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> In any case, this company has a, a prototype right now, um, and it's not gigantic. It's not something that I would actually want to strap to my face at this point. Um, it's, it's the size it's of, a, of a four-cylinder engine. Well, no, that was their previous model. Oh, where okay. They could only set it on the table, and you stick your face up against it, and oh, you couldn't no. like, move around or anything. It was so huge. This one you could actually conceivably put on your head. 
Uh, <laughs> I was just imagining, here, strap this to your face. I'm going to start it up. Insert sound of someone revving up a lawnmower. <laughs> Why do I smell diesel? <laughs> this is going to be a different set of tech reviews. Like, a tech I don't want to strap to my face, tech I can conceivably strap to my face. Uh, we could get millions of views on YouTube with this. <laughs> like, right. Would I strap it to my face? Like, well, with this new Black & Decker weed eater, would you strap this to your face? Today we're going to be using the Ninja food processor. This will probably also be our last episode. <laughs> Brian, how are you feeling after that demonstration? <laughs> Well, he could answer it if he still had his lips. <laughs> the doctors say we can take the bandages off in six to eight weeks, but we really don't want to. <laughs> <sighs> you can tell it's been a while since we've been around each other. <laughs> so you're reviewing the product here, Brian. <laughs> right. <laughs> So they think in about a year, the thing will be small enough that they can actually start shipping it to companies to integrate into actual VR headsets that can be offered to the public. So it sounds like my prediction of five to seven years was spot on. So That's awesome. You may have said this earlier, but how is this going to differ from the technology that we have right now, like the Oculus Rift? Okay, so the way things work right now is you've got essentially a little TV screen a few inches from each of your eyes. Uh, with the light field, instead of you know, just making an image there, it replicates the way light actually travels through the air and reaches your eyes. So instead of, you know, just putting a little screen in there, you've got this uh, actual projection of an environment. So your eyes can actually physically focus far beyond where the end of the visor is. <gasps> wow. That's really cool. Um, there was a company called Lytro that was making a, a light field camera a while back. Uh, they unfortunately went out of business, but you shoot the picture and then you could choose where your point of focus was after you've already shot. Jeez. That's mm -hmm. very cool. And I, I experienced a little bit of it uh, at SIGGRAPH um, four or five years ago. And at that point, it was all, you know, actual giant projectors. And you could, you could be there and you could move around to a, a limited degree and get some parallax in the image. Um, because it's not shooting from a, a single, infinitely small point like a normal camera does. It's got a, an array of micro lenses on a pretty big lens so that you get a little bit of the actual, like, you know, the way you move your head side to side and stuff at different layers of depth move differently. You can do a little bit of that even after the fact. That's unreal. No, it's not available for unreal yet, but... <laughs> <laughs> I've always been interested in getting an Oculus Rift one day, but mm -hmm. I'm even more interested in something like this. Now, I know it has not been released yet. We're still a little ways away from that. Has there been any indication about what the price is going to be for one of these? No, because they're not uh, going to be selling directly to the public. They're going to be licensing this technology to manufacturers that have already got a, uh, a pipeline set up for manufacturing VR uh, headsets. My guess is that this will probably come in at about 30% higher than the existing tech at that time, which if the prices continue to do what they have been doing, I expect we'll be seeing 
the Oculus brand will probably be around the $200 mark uh, by 2023. So then you'd expect these things to come in at probably around 300. If I were to guess at that time, um, they might be a little bit more. It depends on how, how complicated it is to construct the things, obviously. Yeah, that's cheaper than the brand new Xboxes and Playstations right now. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's, this is just the, the interface that I'm talking about. It's not a com- complete system like, a, like an Xbox is. You True. have to have the computer and then add this to it. Um, although I guess the Oculus Quest is the one that's an all-in-one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked about that back then. It's like, I don't think I want to strap an entire computer to my face. <laughs> Except now you can, and it's not that bad. <laughs> as much as I still would like to have one of those, I know that I'll be playing it for five minutes. I'll be playing a Star Wars game because honestly, what else am I going to play on it? I mean, right. <laughs> right. And I'll probably brain one of my children because I'll be lightsaber fighting and just boom, just whack him right in the face. Yeah, apparently uh, uh, Stephen Taylor, Tyler, Taylor of Games for All just did that this week Ooh. to his poor daughter. He was playing Beat Saber and smacked her on the head. <laughs> what we need to do is and just that... set up some stanchions around you, James. <laughs> my, and now my, she's my. telling everybody, my Nothing. daddy hit me. <laughs> my daddy oh my gosh. Hit me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I have a hard enough time playing Beat Saber, hitting things that are like totally stationary in my environment. If I had a pet or a child running around, I was going to say you'd brain the cat so fast. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and my uh, my Middle Earth role playing game has been progressing. Nice. How, how many of the characters are left alive? Uh, well, I did kill another one. I knew um, it. <laughs> None of you realize when it gets to Murps, Brian is bloodthirsty. It's not me. It's the critical charts. It's the, yeah. Actually, and it's the fact it's, that I'm not rolling behind a screen. <laughs> is the is your favorite part of the game the critical sheets? I mean, just well, just asking. That's everybody's favorite part of the game. It really. I mean, <laughs> I, I would make more jokes, but actually, the critical charts are freaking hilarious, and he's not lying about that. Yes. Uh, poor Aragost got his head bisected. Uh, and actually, there were supposed to be two other kills, but I, I kind of hand-waved them away because I didn't want to kill somebody when he wasn't even present to play. You mean a second time? Yes. <laughs> well, he was coming back. I didn't feel quite as awful about it with you because you were having to bow out on a semi-permanent basis. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, with the other guy, if you're going to kill his character just while he's away, just kill his character three sessions later, just stick an F in front of the new character's name. He's like, oh, I'm your brother. I, uh, his brother. I, I had this vision of him floating down the river and I, I, I went, I, I went to the boat and then just move on from there. And he's Here. back in the party. We, we saved all of your brother's equipment and stuff. Here you go. Well, thank you. That, that would, that would name, make his name. Glock. I don't think I want to pronounce that all the time. <laughs> Please do not. <laughs> As it is in three countries, we're going to have to bleep that out of the podcast. <laughs> but anyway, the, the campaign is progressing. Actually, I might reach the end of the module, which I'm very happy about. Um, I'm hoping that I don't have a total party kill next week, but it's shaping up to look that way. <laughs> I, I hear that as, oh, I hope I don't have a total party kill. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Uh, I actually have written into my notes. If I if I get lethal criticals here, I'm going to just mark them down as uh, unconscious instead. There you go. 
Because the PCs have put themselves in a pickle and they don't know it yet. Or just as soon as they're all dead to say, you, uh, you are standing around a table moving war miniatures and units around, still looking at each other saying, well, that scenario went terribly. What else should we do? <laughs> if it was D&D, you know, it's easy enough. You wake up in one of the hells and then we've got a nice new campaign to escape. Right. Doesn't work so well in Middle Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Working in a system where there is no resurrection, uh, he said, after having run Star Wars so many times. Yeah, that... <laughs> well, we can wait 600 years for Aradian to be reincarnated. <laughs> anyway, but it's a it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm really enjoying myself. And I I think my players are, are having fun. Uh, they say they are. I see no reason not to take them at their word. Me neither. I think one thing that you had said earlier on in the podcast, or maybe it was when we were on Saving the Game, is that you're, the players are there for the purpose of having fun. Mm -hmm. So you're already starting with a stacked deck, and the cards are dealt in your favor. They want to have fun, and you're just facilitating their fun. So you're already starting ahead. Yep, that is definitely true. I'm, I'm trying to work in as many scenarios in which there's no combat as I can. Simply because, for one thing, that keeps everybody alive longer. And for another, as much fun as I find MERP, it is a clunky, difficult-to-run combat system. Then just run it with, uh, with the Doctor Who RPG's initiative system, and then you're good. <laughs> uh, that could work. Uh, I don't know that there's quite as much uh, techno-babble in Middle-Earth, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I've I've actually wondered how how it would work in in a fantasy setting because uh, for those of you who who don't know, there's an article that we have on our on our blog about it. But in the Doctor Who RPG, initiative is determined by what sort of action you want to take. So anybody who wants to talk goes first. So if anybody wants to talk the situation down or uh, or bluff or you know somehow evade combat that way, they get to go first doers, people who want to affect the system or somehow affect the environment, build a trap, make some, yeah, there's no techno, techno babble, but do a techno babble thing. They go next. Runners go third. So if you want to run away from the combat, you can, you have your chance to leave. Then after all that happens, anybody who, who wants to swing a sword or pull a trigger, they get to go last, assuming that there's anybody still there in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and now that game i imagine uses a much uh less i never can remember is it more granular when there's more pieces or less granular i think that it is more granular with more pieces okay so a less granular combat round where you're not i swing my sword it's more like i get in a fist fight yeah it's it is i get into a fist fight then once you i mean it i mean it can you can have uh, damage weapons you can have just straight up if you get hit this is lethal and mm -hmm. boom you're done there is no other out um but they also have other ways of dealing with your levels of success and failure so um i i would advise anybody playing doctor who do not get hit because there's not a lot in terms of health points and it is <laughs> easy to die which is why it is also easy to avoid dying by not being there when people are killing Makes sense. We do have, uh, it was it was kind of funny in our last game, last two sessions, I put this uh, red shirt NPC in. He's three levels below everybody else. 
Uh, and I was, he's just there to soak up a little bit of damage and die to make everybody, you know, aware that, hey, this is a lethal situation. Well, he keeps stealing all the kills. Oh, no. <laughs> this guy, it's like, they got in a fight with a forest troll. And, you know, in Middle Earth, a, a troll is bad news. This little second level puke one shot at the forest troll. <laughs> Did at least one of the dwarves look at that and go, it still only counts as one. <laughs> should have well now they want to put him out in front all the time because he's so good i would i mean it's your fault for well it's not entirely your fault but it's the dice's fault that they got a meat shield yeah and he's he did it twice he killed a stone troll also Jeez. at least somebody else got the chance to hit it first but he finished it off <laughs> has he been given the nickname trolls bane <laughs> Uh, well, I finally actually went ahead and statted him out and gave him another level just because I felt he deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> the NPC is a higher level now than the actual characters. Well, no, he's still got two levels to go before he gets there, but <laughs> he does have a much higher offensive bonus because I know how to make a character better than everybody he, else does. When he gets there, he's going to be invincible. <laughs> <laughs> when you die, you get to take over the NPC. Yeah. <laughs> right. They'll, they'll all be fighting over it in this next session, I'm sure. Well, I guess I'll bring back the NPC since he did die. Wait a minute. What are the dice doing? Uh, now he's Trolls Bane the White. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so the third item in my geek out is probably like more of an item for all three of us. Uh, are we ready to talk about WandaVision? Yeah, it's been a few weeks. I yeah. think we're ready to. I mean, if, if we need a spoiler warning at this point, then we really shouldn't be talking about the Hidden Fortress either. Seriously. <laughs> and also, how are people even finding us? Because they're obviously not on the internet. <laughs> yes. But I, when I, I watched the first episode and it's just like, okay, well, this was just an episode of the Dick Van Dyke show. Why am I watching this? And I had to ask, I, I waited a couple of weeks and I asked on, on the MinMax Slack, is this show going somewhere? Should I give it some time? Or is it just going to be a remake of old sitcoms with, Marvel characters in it. Yeah. Funny thing, I was on board for that. You know, I was fully prepared for it to be Wanda and Vision just take a stroll through Nick at Night. Yeah, I don't know why I was so cool with that idea. I was waiting for the episode with the talking horse. (laughs) Oh, I feel like I missed out. Yeah, I was was really hoping for a Mr. Ed themed show. But it would be just like an entire show, but just, just one moment, just a reference. But, you know, we don't always get what we want. Yeah, well... In theory, I'm I'm down with that, but it was just like that that particular episode. I don't know. It was it was all of the kinds of things about those shows that I didn't enjoy. Hmm. I, I couldn't really put my finger on it, but it's like this just was kind of boring to me. And I think that they they progressed the story at it was just barely too slow for me. Um, I think uh, it was one of the the people on Min Max. I don't remember which one who said that. I think it was Ashley who said that she could have gone for even a little bit more of that. Now, if it had been six episodes of slowly pulling back the curtain, I don't think it would have, I wouldn't have stuck with it. I feel like for me, I mean, again, this is just subjective interaction with the, with the medium is it it was paced just right for me. Like Mm -hmm. I was enjoying what was happening. And I was like, Ooh, there's also something else going on. You know, surprise, surprise, because it's (laughs) Um, But yeah, it it was paced out just right for me. 
But I could also binge it because I didn't want to do WandaVision at first because I knew that it had something to do with processing grief and reality distortion and perhaps madness. And at the time, I just didn't have the emotional bandwidth Mm. for that kind of narrative. So I waited a while. Gotcha. See, I went into it with the mindset of this is going to be weird. (laughs) This is going to be different than what we come to expect from Marvel movies and television shows. Mm. And when that was exactly what we got, I was actually happy with it because it was odd. It was like you said, what we got was a brand new episode of the Dick Van Dyke show. And as the decades progressed, I loved it. And when they started weaving in uh, the outside elements as well, I'm like, this this is completely different than what we got with uh, you know Agents of Shield, any of the Marvel movies. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed that it was it was taking a serious look at supernatural, super powered depression and loss, mm. and yeah. it didn't joke with those subjects. Right, it, it took them seriously, and I appreciated that. And I thought it was overall very well done. I'm with you, Mike. It progressed at exactly the pace that was right for me. What I found myself wanting more of was Jimmy Woo and Darcy Lewis. Oh, me too. Yeah. I'm like, can no, we, can no, no, that no, no, be no, the no, next no. TV show, please? Yes, 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 yes. That's the thing. It's like there. That is that was exactly where I was going to go with this. It's like it's not just we could have more of this. Like, why is this duo not their own? team doing their Mm. own show like non-powered people's using their own resources doing good i mean it's and i love those two characters especially darcy she was amazing marvel take note we need a darcy and wood tv show where they take on supernatural problems with scathing commentary and sarcasm and close-up magic absolutely (laughs) you know i think there was also something else about this show that I thought was absolutely the right time. And that's in our in our culture, in our society, with the global issues that we're seeing, the societal, all of the societal problems that are being brought more to, to the forefront, we are seeing our heroes deal with grief, trauma, and loss when all of us are dealing in some respect or another. I mean... I I cannot think of somebody who is not touched in some way by either grief or trauma or loss. And I don't think the show would have flown two years ago. People Mm -hmm. would have just said, you know, what? But now it's it's allowed to hit home and and live in a space that we're ready to process these things. Yeah, the emotional weight of it was it was really resonating, I think, for for the time that it's in, for sure. So that said, uh, bringing this back up, um, so more more Darcy and Wu. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. And, and if you can fit it in Marvel, I guess maybe let us know what happens to Wanda next. You know, whatever. Just <laughs> give us Darcy and Wu first. I was uh, I read something on, on Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago where someone was complaining that the ending was, oh, it's just another Marvel slugfest, and I was so disappointed in beating the bad guy by beating him up. And I'm like, did you watch the same show I did? Because... What I saw was we beat the bad guy with philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the dramatic, you know, 
punch out and shooting and i mean granted they were shooting magics but um, but even that wasn't a slugfest because that was what agatha was expecting and that's what the audience was expecting and then wando's flipped it around with her little trick yeah uh and i was like i don't know where people are coming from when they were criticizing the ending of that show because i thought it was brilliant i mean maybe it was the fact that it was grandiose effects and there was grandiose magic but i mean you're also watching a marvel show mm-hmm. you knew <laughs> i i'll be honest when we were watching the zombie vision versus the imaginary mm-hmm. vision and they're going at it toe to toe neither one really having a advantage over the other and one says is your program to destroy vision yes but i am a conditional vision i sat up i'm like oh where's this going uh, yeah, <laughs> like oh, this is about to go somewhere I didn't expect, and I'm loving it. Going back to your, he beat him with philosophy. I'm like, wow, that's a fantastic way to end a fight. Yeah, and it's so very much in keeping with that character too. It totally is. It was totally respectful to the concept of vision. I think they should have more Marvel things where the the outcome is you talk someone down. Mm. Yeah, and I like that the that the white vision didn't stick around. He made the realization, I am Vision, and now I have to go deal with what that means. Yeah. Kaja had said, so whatever happened to him? And we're like, we don't know. Maybe there will be be a new show. Yeah, I mean, it's Marvel. He's flying away to go read the 1960s comic books to find out what happens after he turned white. (laughs) And they really didn't, in the the initial uh, run of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they really didn't use Paul Bettany and Vision enough. No. And I was I was really disappointed that he got cut out of the story the way he did as early as he did. It's like, oh, he hasn't had time to develop yet. Yeah. And so I'm extremely happy that he's back. I had that exact same conversation with a friend where we talked about the Vision is a physical powerhouse in the Marvel comics. And Paul Bettany is a performing powerhouse on screen or stage. And he was just the most underutilized character in the Marvel movie universe. You know, he shows up. He helps defeat Ultron. He bats around some of his friends in Civil War and then essentially gets a spear through the chest. Mm-hmm. And his third eye ripped out of his head. And in a nutshell, that's it. And forms a relationship with Wanda. Mostly off screen. Yes. The, those yeah, are, those are the character highlights. Like, I didn't remember them. Okay. Okay. I will admit, I am not as well versed in Marvel. I have not seen every single one of the movies, I've seen the key pivotal ones. I did not even remember them being a thing. They flirted a little bit uh, right after uh, Wanda joined the the Avengers. And then there was just like, what, two or three scenes in uh, Infinity War with them together? I think I watched that while I was sick. Well, there was Civil War where he cooked her a meal and was trying to be kind to her and Lots heavy handed. Yeah, there were hints that there was beginnings of friendship. There was friendship there, but yeah, you could see where they were going with it. And then suddenly in Infinity War, they've been seeing each other off and on for a year and incredibly in love. Yeah, we didn't get to see any of that relationship develop. So it just felt underhanded to take it away so so early and so soon, which they, was two ways of saying the exact same thing. They committed a, a <laughs> they committed a storytelling sin. Don't tell us, show us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now maybe we'll get some of that again in future stories. Mm-hmm. So what about you, Mike? What's on your geek out list? 
having to switch tabs. Um, <laughs> Man, when you geek out, you really go all in. Switching I, tabs, that's what I'm geeking out about right now. <laughs> like, wow. gosh. Alt-tab, you know, and, and clicking them up at the top of my browser window. Finding out he could open up two or three at a time. Mind blown. What are you talking about? I had I had finished my one can of tab, and I'm opening the next one. I've been saving these things for decades. Not as fresh as they were the first time around, I'll admit. Wow. All right, good night, everybody. I- <laughs> I'm suddenly reminded of... Back when we were doing Tales from the Loop, 80s brands kept on being brought up, and I actually found a 12-pack of Shasta Cola. Oh, my and gosh. And I, I bought that, and I over the course of the game, I drank it every game night. James is a method role player. Twice in one episode, we asked the question, how did we get here? <laughs> anyway. Guy Gax and Arneson and Stanislavski. <laughs> uh, for my geek out... Um, I want to take a little bit of time and talk about a game product that I had gotten, I guess it's a year ago now at PAX. At the time, our D6 RPG was on hiatus. And so my youngest wanted me to keep an eye out for something that would be uh, something that had an RPG feel that we could play as a family, but wouldn't be as demanding as let's come up with a campaign and let's let's do character because I just didn't have the bandwidth at the time to do something entirely new. Uh, and I bought something, but then our, our campaign started up again. So, you know, the, this has been sitting on the shelf for a while. And what I had picked up was, was something called Emberwind. Uh, and uh, I picked up Emberwind Skies of Axia, which is, it, it, promotes itself as a GM-less RPG system slash campaign book. And it works something like something between an RPG and a choose-your-own-adventure. And I, I say that in a positive sense, because it, it if you say that you've got a campaign book and it's just another solo adventure, it's just a choose-your-own-adventure, that, that could go pretty lame or it could go pretty well. And this... This goes well enough that it scratches just the right itch for us to play through a story and has a really good combat system. So we get a little bit of feeling like we have enough agency to drive how we're going through this narrative, even though that we know that it's still kind of on the rails. Uh, You're going to get into a combat here. It has a combat map. It has you printed up. So, I mean, you know, be ashamed to spend the ink and not use it, right? (laughs) And, uh, and it's actually got a pretty sophisticated system for dealing with its, its NPCs. And when you're on the battle map and you've got, you've got pretty dictated places where the NPCs are, are on the map, you roll a, a D six and it's got this hex map of how they interact. So it starts with a base movement. And then depending on whether you roll one through six, you go through this chart that says, well, then they do this, then they do this. Uh, Their behavior is they always go for the weakest character or the character that last hit them or the one who is doing the most, you know, it it has a, you know, it it has a branch in terms of how they're of their own NPC logic. And it's fun. Uh, It's, 
it's based on D&D-ish in terms of its combat mechanics, but really slimmed down. Uh, and also it's, I kind of feel like they're trying hard to make sure that they're not D&D by having it be a roll under system rather than a roll over system. And so in one combat, we had a friend who was, who was with us and he, he rolls, he's like, nice, natural 20. How much damage do I do? And I'm like, uh, none. You <laughs> missed. Like, wait, what? It's like, yeah, ones and twos are good. Uh, eights and nines are okay. Twenties are, are you, you don't, you don't want a 20. <laughs> Just like you could, it's <laughs> almost like the sound of a deflating balloon flying around the room. <laughs> But, uh, but it's, it's pretty cool, uh, because you, you roll a one, two or three, depending on your character, you, you crit if you, uh, and you do max damage. If you roll underneath something called penetration, like if you have like a penetration value of like 10 or eight, well, you plow through their damage resistance. And after a certain point, you just hit. And then after a certain point, you just miss. Uh, so it's rewarding to have that die roll and then something happen based on how well you rolled without having to add in all kinds of other modifiers of a plus two for this or a plus three for this or adding this feat and this talent with this feat and this talent. And so you get wind up with a plus eight when you are within six squares of an ally who is armed with an, with a melee weapon while you have an opponent that is adjacent with another opponent less than six squares away when armed only with a banana. So you're saying you don't want to play MERP. I... <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me more about the banana than maybe. <laughs> I think I said about all I can say about bananas on this podcast previously. Okay. <laughs> so it's a slippery subject. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's fun. I like it. We're about halfway through the campaign book and we're, we're planning on getting the next one. Once we finish it out, it's just, it's, it's good because we don't have to have a GM. And, and we're, we're all enjoying it for what it is. So um, if you're looking for a fully fleshed out RPG, it can go that direction. It has other books to help make it that, but that's, that's not what I want to do. So I just, I, I just don't have the bandwidth in that. So it's the perfect product for me. Gotcha. Also, uh, something that is finally on my reading list, and it's something that you talked about, James, a little bit, so I'm not going to go too much into detail, and also something that my friend Sydney has been pushing into my hands. So if James and Sydney say I need to read this book, then I need to read uh, His Majesty's Dragon. Yes. I am really liking this thing. Uh, it's... Uh, it's just a brief overview for you listeners who don't feel like flipping all the way back to the episode when we were talking about Into the Spider-Verse. It is about, uh, it, I think it's kind of historicalish fantasy. Like it's, mm -hmm. it, it's set in a time and a place during the Napoleonic Wars. And it's following this, uh, this English naval officer who has captured this enemy ship and on board this French ship. Uh, is a dragon egg and it hatches and it gets attached to him. And so now he has to switch branches of the military 
uh, which is a huge culture shift because now he has to be an aviator because apparently once a dragon fixates on you, you can't hand the dragon off to somebody else. You're your best buds forever until one of you dies or maybe both of you, who knows? Um, so it's, it, it's a journey of discovery and it's this journey of camaraderie as they're both trying to adjust to this new life in this new place in the backdrop of, of the Napoleonic Wars. So I'm, I'm about halfway through it. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. It, they've been a great series of books, uh, from Naomi Novik. Yes. And I've read most of them. There are, I believe, nine books Holy in the series. Cow. Yeah, His Majesty's Dragon is the first. And I think I read the second to last one that came out, Blood of Tyrants. I know there was one released a few years ago. I don't know if it wrapped it up or not. I, I It came out at a time that I was reading several other books as well, so I haven't gotten around to it. But... It's great. I mean, it's exactly what you described, the Napoleonic Wars, but with Dragon Air Force. Now, this was the same author as uh, Spinning Silver, I think. Yes. That you recommended Absolutely. in the past. Yes. Yes. I I cannot recommend Spinning Silver enough. Naomi Novik is just an incredible author, and she has a way of of tailoring her writing style to to really fit the emotional tenor of what she's talking about. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have even identified that this was the same author if, if I hadn't known it. I mean, like, you, you know how you see some actors and the characters that they portray are so different from each other that you, you think that can't be the same person. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet it is uh, just the style of presenting the characters and uh, the way that she presents her prose is such that I don't think I would have, I would have connected the two of you and told me. And it's excellent in both cases. Yeah. And the final thing in my geek out is something that we've kind of been doing as a family and been doing as kind of an expanded bubble um, is we've, as, as a couple of our friends are getting their second shot of the vaccine, we're, we're kind of expanding who it is that is coming into our household. And so Sometimes we'll have two friends there. Both of them have been double stuck. I've been double stuck. Um, Kasha's had COVID, so she has limit. You know, we talked to the doctor, and they're like, "Yeah, no, no, no. This is this is fine. This is this works." Uh, and so we've kind of gotten a a couple of packages of party games that we've been playing together, and the jackpot games are really doing something something fun for just light hearted social interaction in this space. And we've got them on a switch. We've turned on the family friendly mode because they have some not family friendly modes, um, which we've discovered on accident with the children, <laughs> which was awkward. And what it is is a series of, of games that have very basic premises. Uh, one of them called Drawful is you are supposed to draw on your smartphone or tablet a picture to match a phrase that they give you. And, you know, it might be the candy man can. And you're like, okay, how do with my finger do I draw the candy man can? And then it puts that picture up on the screen and it says, okay, caption this with what you think is the actual title. And then it rolls over and says, okay, here are all the titles that we were presented. Pick which one you think was correct. Vote for the right one. And you get points based on whether you were correct or or uh, whether people voted for you. Uh, 
other games where, you know, they give you a, like a fill in the blank and you each write your own little quips, which you think will be funny uh, to fill in that blank or complete that sentence or that narrative. And people vote for which quips they think are funnier. And they're really simple. Uh, and they there's not a lot of thought process that goes into these games. But that's kind of what makes it fun is you just do something silly and you have something on on the game system, you know, TV that is humorous and surprising and and all lets you just kind of interact with this as the as the social atmosphere. Um, you know, when the background radiation of we're still in, in, in expanding, we're still under quarantine, but not quite. And so it's, yeah, we can't go out and do a whole lot. So what, what do we do here in this space? And it's just kind of been, that's kind of been a good social medium, I suppose. Very cool. And that'll wrap it up for me. Well, then I guess that, uh, means we're heading to our main topic. We're continuing our historical fiction film club with the Akira Kurosawa film, The Hidden Fortress. Yeah, this film may not be as well known to some of our listeners. So should we give a little bit of a synopsis of the film? Great idea. Take it away, Mike. I, wait, no, I, I didn't, I didn't watch the film. I'm just, I'm just here to try to sound smart. <laughs> what to do? Well, you're stuck. You've got to synopsize it. Synopsize it. Sum it up, Mike. How do I always get caught lying? Gosh. No, Okay. All right. Uh, I was going into this film blind and, you know, I, I, I had heard about the Hidden Fortress. And since I'd watched all of the background videos to Star Wars, I, I knew that the Hidden Fortress was an influence to George Lucas with, you know, all of the Kurosawa films. But I didn't know what kind of film this was. And in that case, this really didn't quite help me because <laughs> knowing what kind of film you're watching helps you pick out certain story elements and helps you, you know, if I'm watching a romantic comedy, I know to pick out and wait for these elements. Or if I'm watching an action movie, I know to watch for, for these sort of developments in the plot. And I didn't know what I was looking for. Yeah. Um, knowing ahead of time that you're going into a comedy is certainly helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Especially since, because this is from another culture, if you don't realize that, it's supposed to be comedic, then you might miss the subtleties of the humor that were in it. Yeah. Like uh, we'll, we'll get into a little bit more in our synopsis, but there's a scene in which princess Yuki is kind of mocking her, her samurai protector. And if you don't realize that this is a humorous scene, you miss the very subtle expressions on her face. I thought it was hilarious mm -hmm. because I saw what was going on in her head. But if you're treating it as this is a samurai epic and everybody is serious, <laughs> then you totally miss out on that. I'm, I'm with you guys. As I was watching this movie, this is the first time I've ever seen it as well. I kept trying to wrap my head around what type of movie it was. And there was so much that I was wondering, so many moments I was wondering, okay, what am I missing out on contextually because I'm not Japanese from the 1950s? Like if I were to if I were to see this with friends who grew up watching these films, would they be laughing at parts that I have no clue what's going on? What am I missing? Because I've, I've not watched hardly any Asian cinema. Well, what we should do is sit down and have a viewing party with George Lucas. And if he's laughing, we should laugh, too. 
No, because at that point he's going to go, okay, see this part here? Uh, I put this part in Star Wars. Okay, you see this other part here? I also put this in Star Wars. This part I didn't, but I did in the remake. <laughs> you know, okay, like Star Wars aside, I bet that 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 someone like Lucas who who deeply fell in love with these in film school, like if there was anybody else, like maybe on this podcast, who fell in love with this deeply and love it, uh, love with this in film school, like there could be an amazing commentary as, you know, the let's pause and watch, pause and watch, pause and watch. Mm-hmm. So uh, I didn't actually watch this one in film school. This was actually my first time watching it too. Um, I had seen <laughs> other Kurosawa films previously, and I was at least familiar with the uh, the premise and the the type of movie that it was. So I didn't know that. I thought this was like one of your favorite films. No, no. <laughs> so, so let us continue with letting our listeners know exactly what type of movie or what what's going on in this movie. Yeah, uh, with the comedic elements or strong comedic elements, this also has kind of a in retrospect, it felt like a road trip kind of film where you you know that the destination is to is to get to point B, but it's not really about the destination, even if a lot is like the not dying part. Uh, and it's about what what happens on the way. And so our our narrative begins with two hapless peasants. Um, and I've practiced saying these names, I, I promise you. And if anybody here speaks Japanese, you have every right to hate me. I agree. <laughs> um, it's Tahe and Matashi. It's, it basically sounds like Matashi. It sounds like Matashi, but it's Matashishi. Yeah, Matashichi. A lot of times they just kind of jam all of the middle middle letters together. So you get it's like Matashi. Yeah. And there's a, just kind of miss that A and the I, and it's just Matashi. That's one of the things I've noticed listening to anime. The names don't sound like they're written with to English ears. You know, it's just like listening to somebody talk about place names in Britain. Yeah. You just get most of the letters. Okay, oh, look, that is not fair. That's I the mean, River Thames. All... It's spelled T-H-A-M-E-S. <laughs> Worcester. Worcester. Mm-hmm. We, ha- we have a Worcester. We have a Peabody. We also have... Gloucester. We have all sorts of syllables missing from New England names, too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's no... just like that. Yeah, okay. Atahe and um, Matsushi. And it begins with them arguing and not for the last time. Um, Before either of them can come to grips with their position, they see a samurai run into frame. And I'm convinced that this samurai was our exposition man. However, in order to make a point, Kurosawa has him killed before he can utter a single word. And Tahe and Matsushi are and will be for the rest of the film pursued by the Yamana clan. On their misadventures, they learn that the Yamana clan has already recently defeated and more or less destroyed the Akizuki clan. But that clan's princess is in hiding and a vast fortune of Akizuki gold is hidden. So Tahe and Matsuchi fall in with a samurai babysitter, um, Rokuruda, who is protecting a young woman. The young woman is, surprise, surprise, Princess Yuki, though Tahe and Matsuchi never put that together until the end and even after that after it's explained to them i'm not entirely sure that they put it together (laughs) the rest of the film is them trying to smuggle the hidden gold and the princess across enemy lines into safe territory of the hayakawa clan where the akizuki clan can rebuild that's our structure if the names get to be too much 
we could just refer to them as they're known in today's culture, cinematic culture, R2-D2 and C-3PO. I mean, with a lot of Jar Jar Binks mixed in. Yes. <laughs> I think Brian previously said the potty mouth Jar Jar Binks. Right, the, the foul mouth Jar Jar. Yeah, the language that they were using really surprised me at times. See, this is why when Lucas decided to adopt these characters, R2 only speaks in beeps. Ah, uh, good point. I'd forgotten he's foul-mouthed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, that's been the joke, is that R2-D2 is so foul-mouthed that everything that he says in, our, in Star Wars, this is bleeped out. But... <laughs> All right, so now that that's kind of the general trajectory of the film, why, why this film? Well, I feel I should field most of that question since I was the one who insisted on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, early on when we said, hey, we're going to do historical fiction, uh, The Last Samurai was, was suggested. And uh, while I liked the idea of, you know, coming back to Japan for another story because we'd previously done uh, the Miyazaki films, all I could think of was Kurosawa. I was like, no, that's what we're doing now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we'd, we'd previously had the Miyazaki films that we talked about. It's like, oh, so yeah. A samurai story would cap that off nicely, but I don't know that I want a, a Hollywood yeah. samurai story. I mean, we do so much uh, American and to a lesser degree European cinema already. Let's let the Japanese speak for themselves. Um, and so I really wanted a, a non-Western film instead of Blast Samurai. And so I looked at uh, it's like, OK, well, samurai movies, Akira Kurosawa is the way to go. We could do Yojimbo or Seven Samurai or Ron or whatever. It's like, but this is us and we love Star Wars. And so why not go to that film that George Lucas talked about loving and watch The Hidden Fortress? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I know what you mean about the, about the last samurai and its background. And it's one of those things that I had a lot of questions about Hollywood and Japanese history and more importantly, culture that I just didn't have the background or bandwidth to deconstruct so it it felt yeah it, it would feel somewhat disingenuous to have this thing that we couldn't really comment on on its own ground and just kind of taking too much for granted with hollywood telling us about our lens yeah <laughs> and like i said before my exposure to asian cinema has been extremely limited most of what I've seen has been coming out of China because China is pretty much a cinematic powerhouse these days and has been for a while. Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Hero. And so to see a classic from Japan that even though it says Toho on the front, it does not include a <laughs> nuclear powered dinosaur. It was refreshing <laughs> and also informative. Uh, and another reason I wanted to watch this one is because the the narrative structure is more accessible to Western audiences uh, than a strict samurai piece. If you're watching Yojimbo, you really have to, to understand a little bit more about uh, the samurai culture. But in this one, we've got these two guys, these hapless peasants, that we understand what it's like, uh, or what it was probably like for somebody who doesn't have power, doesn't have authority, and be trampled on by the people who do. Mm -hmm. That's a universal concept. And so yeah. you don't need to know about the Sengoku period and the warring states and what the, the samurai code is to understand these two guys 
want to make some money and then go home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what little that we have been exposed to in American cinemas has been very much westernized. Like you, we've brought up The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise. It's a good movie. I remember seeing it in theaters and it was fun. But in all honesty, it's probably about as historically accurate as Braveheart. Well, let's be honest. This one's not exactly historically accurate either. (laughs) (laughs) It's got the same failings as a a Western movie about Western culture. You know, Kurosawa is not concerned about telling us history. He's concerned about making a compelling story. And the samurai are about as romanticized as our idea of the Western knight. Hmm. So... This is James and I sitting on our hands about misconceptions of Western nights. So go, do go on before that. Before, <laughs> yeah, before, before this the show becomes a lot longer than we meant it to be. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then, of course, I, as I said earlier, the influence on Star Wars is not to be ignored. And the influence doesn't stop there because this, this story has been mined for other things that we like, like uh, Babylon 5's episode of View from the Galley, which had the, the two uh, custodians you know, watching from a distance as Sheridan and Delenn fight this big battle. And there was an episode of the of, uh, Stargate SG-1 called The Other Guys, in oh, which we yeah. have the two scientists who try to rescue SG-1 after they've been captured, never knowing that SG-1 got themselves captured on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so this story shows up in, in other places too, other than just Star Wars. And I think it's it's fun to, to kind of compare and contrast those those other stories with it. So... Speaking of the, you know, not entirely historically accurate and historicity of of film, how educated are we on the grand scope of Japanese history and culture after having viewed this film, he asked with tongue firmly in cheek. (laughs) (laughs) I, I feel like having a little bit of knowledge of the warring states period helped place the film. But the film is really more of a journey set in a time and a place than, you know, more than something that revolves around historical persons. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking for myself, uh, the historicity of it wasn't really critical to me, but my curiosity was piqued enough that I, you know, I looked up a couple of Wikipedia pages, uh, did enough research to learn that the Yamada and Azu- Akizuki clans weren't even on the same island, so they probably were never at war least not directly, uh, Akizuki's in Kyushu, which is that the third largest island off the southern tip of Honshu, which is the big big island. And one of the other clans in the film is entirely fictional. Yeah, there's a, a Hayakawa family, apparently, but it's not a, a full clan. They belong to an, inside another clan. Hmm. And even though the details aren't historical and the period was real enough, though. Uh, it was it was a time and a place where that had very little Chinese interference. Japan had relatively open borders, which is pretty rare in their history. And there was very little imperial control. The emperor was mostly ceremonial at that point. And local lords had were the ones that had ultimate control over what was going on in their territories. And they wanted more territory and more influence. And so there was Mm -hmm. a lot of conflict between, uh, between these daimyos as they were, as they warred against each other and they negotiated with, for, with the West for supplies such as firearms. Hence you see a lot of samurai with muskets in the film. Oh, those aren't actually samurai though. Uh, uh, Ashigaru, they're conscripted peasants. 
That's why when you had that big fight between uh, Rokuruda and, oh, I don't remember the other guy's name, uh, that everybody was like trying to keep their distance from Rokuruda because he's a samurai. He's a professional hereditary warrior. And these guys are just peasants with with spears. And so they're terrified of him. And it's it's interesting because there was some bit of, of fear, it seemed, that kind of went both ways because those those riflemen were also, they were also no joke. I mean, at a distance. And it's it's also kind of funny because in the West we had we had a, a similar thing where knights hated the arquebus, which is like their it's I don't want to call it a rifle because it wasn't rifled, but it was a you know firearm. And all it took was a peasant with an afternoon's worth of training to best somebody who had spent their youth training into adulthood. One piece of historic realism that I did appreciate is the fact that in one scene where the the hero group is on the run from an army who has these these muskets and you just hear them firing off all the time and the heroes aren't even close to being hit and mm-hmm. that's because they're shooting you know 16th century smooth bore rifles with round ammunition so you can aim at a barn and you'll be lucky if you hit the tree on the other side of the house even if you're inside the barn yes <laughs> One thing that's interesting about that, uh, that was a historically accurate note, is that unlike European armies using firearms, they don't stand in a line and everybody shoots at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The Ashigaru were actually trained to just have this uh, persistent and continuous firing, um, so they, they were, the volley would never let up. I did see when there was the peasants' revolt at the beginning, the slave revolt, you saw line after line after line of the Ashigaru and the front line would fire and they'd run to the back. The next line would fire, run to the back. They'd go to the back, reload until it was time for them to shoot again. And it was, like you said, a continuous rotating line of fire, never letting up. I was like, that is fantastic. I wonder how period it is because it looks great and it's proven to be very effective. The Japanese advanced uh, firearm use very, very quickly during this period. Mike mentioned that they'd, they'd been importing guns from Europe, the Portuguese. Uh, They only did that for a little while. And then they started manufacturing their own and improving on them very rapidly. Oh, yeah. Uh, They made, you know, boxes to protect the the match locks so that they could fire in the rain. They developed these these tactics to use them more effectively. Uh, They took to they took to guns very rapidly and very uh, eagerly. It was really interesting. I got to see some museum pieces uh, in the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, where they had uh, they actually had a, a, a samurai uh, exhibit, and the the Japanese firearms of the period were just absolutely stunning pieces, because there was so much um, not only function but form invested in in their uh, in their manufacture. So. Yeah, they're, they and they also had some interesting pieces where they had some samurai armor that came with musket ball dents. And I say came with as in immediately after their manufacture, uh, they would shoot them with a with a musket ball to demonstrate that they were that they were sturdy enough to, to handle a shot. So see, it was I, really fascinating. I would love to see a more uh, a study of that. Like we've seen videos mike you and i of todd cutler he's done videos of 150 pound war bows against breastplates 
And I've also watched videos of period-appropriate firearms against steel breastplates and armor. I have not seen one done against samurai-style armor. I mean, it's interesting because when they... This is the problem is when we have these videos, we're taken from surviving museum examples and then reconstructing them. So, I mean, any any sort of test you're going to do is imperfect. Yeah. Um, but we do know that as firearms evolved, uh, there there was an arms race. Like there, there were people that tried to protect their vitals with thicker and more layers. This, uh, there was a piece that they had in the Higgins Armory Museum where they had taken an old breastplate and then welded it onto an additional breastplate to make it thicker with the hopes of, of withstanding uh, the just the punch of a firearm. Ooh. So they must have been a beast to wear. There is a reason why armor fell out of use on the battlefield eventually. So I'm... <laughs> if I'm going to get shot, I'm going to get shot. I'm not wearing 60 pounds of extra layers. If I put another layer on this, I'm no longer a soldier. I'm a fort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone bring me a peasant. I want to hit him. <laughs> Speaking of peasants, the, the first people that we do see in this movie are peasants are a pair of them, and much of the film is taken from their perspective. And so it did make me curious on the class system that existed at this time period. We get an idea of peasants. We see peasants, both these two with the names that I won't try to replicate, and uh, <laughs> uh, peasants performing a festival, peasants in a town, and uh, we get some views of nobility and of soldiers and more. And I haven't had a chance to really do any research onto it, but it just made me curious about what the class system was like and its similarities and differences to what existed in Europe at the time. Sure. Uh, yeah. What I can say very confidently, I mean, if we're talking about comparisons between Japan and uh, the large swath of cultures that was that was Europe at this time... I guess it's really simply say we need to read more books. <laughs> yeah, I am absolutely unqualified to answer that question. Yeah, I've read a little bit, but it's been too long ago for me to really comment on it much. There is one thing I did notice which really helped differentiate the class divide. Only members of a high level of military or nobility are allowed to wear pants. <laughs> apparently you have to be very very high because yes. yuki's not wearing any no i saw exactly two people in this entire movie wearing pants everyone else was wearing beach shorts or basically man diapers it's interesting because pants were actually introduced to japan uh, via trade in the no, i don't know <laughs> This was a joke played on them by the Portuguese. Oh, no, everybody in Europe is wearing these diaper things. It, it's the height of fashion. It's just, that no. it's just that they're terribly comfortable. I imagine everyone would be wearing them in the future. <laughs> like, and I've I've worn the tights. I've worn the poofs. I, I don't know. Like, that's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stick here. to the trousers that I like. To, you know. to go back to before the show here, this is called a cod piece. You just wear this and nothing else. <laughs> I mean, I, I wish that wasn't true in some places and times well, uh, moving on to the film craft before we get hung up one, one more thing i wanted to say on that because there was something i remembered that this movie highlights sure that uh class divide 
is more important to them than their nationality. That the fact that you're a noble and I'm a peasant is far more important than you're Yamana and I'm Akizuki. That's interesting. Yeah. I was made curious by this by one particular event where uh, C-3PO and R2 are digging around in the fire pit looking for more gold. And these two <laughs> soldiers come on them and they're like, what are you doing there? And, you know, they try and run away. And these two guys find out, oh, there's, there's gold in the fire pit and they follow them. And instead of, oh, hey, here's some an enemy samurai and the princess that everybody is looking for. Rokuruda says, OK, you guys carry those sacks and come with us. And they do it hmm. like, no, this is the enemy. Remember? No, but he's a samurai and we're peasants. So we, we obey him. It's interesting uh, because as I was doing some background digging around on this film, I actually listened to George Lucas talk about the film for a little bit. And he had said that one of the things about viewing this film as Westerners is that the distinctions of class make so much more difference to to a Japanese viewer than they would to us as Westerners. So that a lot of the nuances are lost on us because we don't have that innate connection to the class structure in which this film was was written and directed. Hmm. Okay, now the next question. Oh, well, the next question is, <laughs> is there anything in the film craft that stood out? Once again, my answer is at the top of the list, so I'll go first again. Uh, f- for me, I thought this was a superb example of just the, the black and white photography. Um, I don't know if they have the same kind of uh, systems in Japanese photography as we do here, the, the zones, but the, uh, the contrast levels, everything being very clear, I mean, the fact that it's black and white kind of falls away after a little while. Um, I mean, I have memories of color in this film, even though there wasn't any, just because the, hmm. the photography is so good. Uh, it's undercut somewhat by bad camera handling, um, like that first shot where we're following R2 and 3PO. And the camera is just kind of bouncing around, and I'm getting seasick trying to watch it. Uh, and there was a shot where... It was a deliberate choice to draw our attention to the sticks in the water, but it was a little bit too much because you had just the top of the two characters' heads at the mm. bottom of the frame. It's like, I should have kept their their heads and shoulders in the frame, and we'd have still seen this is strangely framed. Maybe there's something going on with the water. So the, the cinematography wasn't always perfect, but at least the the technicals of the, the contrast and the color, the, the lack of color were really good. Um, and it was also one of the first, James mentioned seeing Toho at the beginning. It was a Toho scope, which was a, a new lens system developed in answer to the cinema scope here in the U S. And this was maybe, I think this was a year after Toho scope was uh, introduced. So this was Kurosawa's first super wide frame. And one of the first, this is probably the, the biggest movie that had used Toho scope at, at that time. Um, so that's just an interesting historical note. Could you help me out and tell me what CinemaScope is and how Tohoscope was a response to it? Uh, okay, so in the, the heyday of, of uh, Hollywood films, everybody's looking for something to make their, their movie stand out uh, better than everybody else. And so one of the things that they started doing was playing with the aspect ratio. And the CinemaScope, I don't remember the exact uh, aspect ratio that CinemaScope is, but it's it's much wider than the the previous films that have been uh, been made. And so they're like, oh, we get this 
this even wider. It's a bigger picture. It's not actually bigger because you're cropping stuff off the top and bottom. <laughs> um, right. But it looks bigger in your in your theater. You got to actually turn your head to see the whole frame. Um, and so that would be something that they would throw up on the beginning of the movie, shot in cinema cinemascope. Um, and I, I think it was actually it might have been an anamorphic lens. Come to think of it, where the the lens squashes things horizontally to fit in the the film frame, and then when you project it, the lens unsquashes. Interesting. Um, hmm. And we still do this now. You see the new star Wars trilogy was shot on anamorphic. And I don't know if, if either of you would have noticed it, but uh, there was a thing that they did on those, those big rack focuses where you're, you're changing focus from somebody on the foreground to somebody in the background. And like the background suddenly like gets larger, like vertically, but not horizontally. Oh, and it was making me ill every time they did it because it was like, Oh gosh, this is making everything all swimmy because it's an, it's a, a non-circular lens. So things expand vertically differently than they do horizontally. Fascinating. Uh, Whoa. So it's something they still use. We're, there was, we're dealing with a lot of anamorphic on why the last man right now. It's real. There was a scene or two in the rise of Skywalker where I, I just remember the time that there was some type of weird pan or something was going on in the background. Like you explained that, just for a moment, Mike, my, my mind and my eyes are going, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? And then it was past, mm-hmm. but it just, I don't know, like my vision got blurry for a second. And okay, that explains it. Yeah, it was driving me crazy through uh, The Last Jedi in the, the village scene when Rey and, and Skywalker are talking. They were rack focusing all the time between them. It's like, oh, gosh, stop that. <laughs> So I just need one last moment of, of clarity that with this with this anamorphic filming, it's not filming a film adaptation of anamorphs. Uh, no, that's a Good. different thing. Okay. All right. I, was scared I don't know if they film anamorphs in anamorphic or not. <laughs> I think if they don't, that's a lost opportunity and they should rethink I, it. I think, I, mean, the, yeah. I think the less said about anamorphs at this point, the better, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> the less we have to include them in the show notes. Let's, let's carry on. Let's. <laughs> okay. Uh, since we have talked extensively on this podcast previously about uh, duels, uh, how did you guys feel about the, the big duel scene in the middle of this movie? An unexpected surprise and pleasure. <laughs> yeah. The staging of the duel was wonderful. Uh, and I think it very well demonstrates a principle that we really just didn't have time for in our movie sword fight episode was the dynamic setting. They start off in this circle and they have this back and forth fight. You know, they, you know, there's, there's swings and misses, swings and misses. There are jabs and, and deflects and so on and so forth. But the scene changes as the dramatic tensions shift during the fight and they sort of move out of their circle. And one thing I didn't realize is this was so well edited. That went from, from location shooting to soundstage shooting. And uh, they're, they're fighting like through these pieces of cloth and mm-hmm. around shields that are, that are set up. And uh, it, it very well uses a dynamic setting and mm-hmm. the tensions of the setting match yeah. the amped up tensions of the fight. And that was so well. The environment was very much a part of the fight, just yes. as much as the fighters and the weapons. Yes. And uh, you don't, you don't see that a lot 
and it had a very real feel to it that starts in one place and it progresses just to, to all over the fights are messy. You know, yeah. they're meant to be messy. They're not clean. And this one went all over the place. It felt so genuine. One of the more genuine fights that I've seen on screen. Yeah, I think that we could probably go on for like 20 minutes about how to well use the the set and the setting and the environment as part of the fight. Um, but I don't know that we want to take up 20 minutes of this podcast, but it's, <laughs> we'll, we'll use it as bonus content for, you know, that other one that we did. <laughs> as much as Lucas has, we've already mentioned how much Lucas has taken from this movie. While watching this spear fight, I kept hearing the duel of the fates in my head. <laughs> yeah. At the beginning, I was hearing good, bad, and the ugly. Ah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing that also got me is, you know, when you say the duel of fates, that's that's put like right at the end of the Star Wars film. All the duels are, most of them are, are at the end of the film, which is where we expect the big bad sword fight to happen. But this one didn't. This one happened in the middle of the film, mm-hmm. which is which is less common. Uh, we'd expect a, a final showdown of powers, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It occurred either towards the end of the middle or beginning of the end, and it was serving to be an emotional catalyst for one of our antagonists. Yeah. And that was brilliant. And I thought that it also did a good job of, again, pointing out the class divide. Because the enemy general has just literally rode up on a horse on a platter (laughs) and is now surrounded by troops. And what does he do? He calls out the general of the other army and says, hey, how you been? Oh, I'm doing good. Hey, you want to have a duel? Let's do it. Yeah, there is tactically zero reason to, to say yes. Yeah. Like, we've got him surrounded. There is... 80 of us and one of him if, if we don't poke him at least 80 times that's there's there's a problem yeah i mean my, my response would have been i'd have taken a little sip of my sake i've gone nah <laughs> you you 50 soldiers surrounding him uh dog pile him please thank you now i mean i i'm not gonna i i think that we should stop short of talking about class divides historically but this is one of the class lenses through which kurosawa is telling a story true now, there's something else going on there, too, in that these two guys are friends. They're very mm. good friends. And so, you know, Rokurodu's looking for, okay, how do I get out of this situation? Because if I try to fight all these guys, I'm going to die. And uh, his buddy, uh, Tadakoro, is looking for an opportunity. How can I get my friend out of this situation without killing him and without, you know, surrendering my honor? And so this off- offer of a duel is a way out for both of them. So I don't have to kill my friend and the other guys, I don't have to get killed by my friend and everybody can walk away from this. All right. Um, Of course that introduced the complication and that uh, Tadakoro was punished for uh, letting Rokuroto go. Rokuroto? I can't remember which, where the T and where the K goes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's also the, the placement of it in terms of where it happens in the movie is another symptom of this is not a samurai epic. This is not an action mm. movie. It is very much a comedy and a road trip movie. Uh, and so this is this is still part of our our rising action. This is still a complication along the journey and not uh, not the conclusion of the film. And speaking of duel of the fates, 
Yeah, we've <laughs> talked a little bit about the influences of this film on Star Wars, though I think that one thing I wasn't prepared for when I was watching the film is how nuanced those influences are. I mean, it's not like we can see the same archetypes, the same the same through the whole film. Like, okay, we have a princess. She's not cut from the same cloth as <laughs> Princess Leia. Um, Rokuruda's not cut from the same cloth as, say, Ben Kenobi. He doesn't have the same function in the film. He's not training our... I'm not going to call them heroes. They're not going to train our, our lens on how to be samurai or even be decent people. Uh, <laughs> but the thing that is the influence on Star Wars is pretty almost exclusively uh, the film is seen through the lens, through the eyes, of the characters of the least status. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of times that they were walking into danger or walking away from the other characters. And I, I say to my friend, well, they're not going to die. We're not going to lose them because they're our lens. We don't have a story if we have this. And so the largest influences here appear to be the parallels between the viewpoint of Tahe and Matsushi and R2-D2 and 3C. I can say the Japanese name, but I can't say the same <laughs> like, This is going all the way back to Jennifer Connelly all over again. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I think it would. it's a mistake to approach it as though A New Hope is a remake of The Hidden Fortress, because yeah. that's yeah. not what it is. Lucas saw some things that he liked in this story, and he borrowed them. He saw some things that he liked in other Kurosawa films, and he borrowed those. So yeah, R2 and 3PO are definitely, you know, Tahe and Matsushi. Matsu, I can't say it. <laughs> Matsushi. The thing is, how how much did we practice this before we hit record? Like, oh, we had a whole 20 minute conversation yeah. about it. <laughs> and I think, I wonder if Lucas was continuing to mind this story uh, it, when he set up that thing with the decoy and the Phantom Menace. Mm. Lucas has never, I mean, as far as I've seen in in my Star Wars behind the scenes lore, which is extensive. Um, I've never seen him mention it specifically, though I've read a few assessments of how Lucas drew on early drafts of A New Hope, which drew more heavily from aspects of The Hidden Fortress while he was writing The Phantom Menace. So maybe. Yeah, I think as a creative, everything that we, we take in comes back out in later work, whether we are aware of it or not. Right. And so he may not have decided, hey, I want to use this element of the Hidden Fortress in my new movie. He might have just, hey, I had this great idea. I have no idea where it came from. And, you know, 15 years later, he says, oh, hey. <laughs> huh. Funny thing. There were some shots that reminded me of some of the environmental shots in Star Wars, uh, particularly and when we're looking at the rocky crags and Tatooine. Mm. There were also a lot of the uses of dissolves and wipes that periodically reminded me of the way that Star Wars used those kinds of elements. And that seemed to be the extent of direct influences and parallels that I could see. Yeah, when they were, when our two little droids were climbing around in the rocky crags and climbing and slipping up the rocky hill, I kept on thinking to myself, okay, if I see one Jawa, I'm turning it off. I'm I'm out. I mean, uh, see, I was expecting Tahe to say, I'm not going that way. It's far too rocky. You watch your language. <laughs> no, but they, but even that they did that 
like in the first mm-hmm. five minutes of the film, like they split yep. up mm-hmm. and it's only by a happenstance that they wound up captured by the same people. Yeah. Okay. These two are definitely R2 and 3P. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was not lost to me. I kept on expecting the taller one. You know, you'll be malfunctioning within a day. You this happens scrap pile. Yeah, except he said other words. <laughs> yes, which honestly, that might have been what R two was saying. We don't know. We... <laughs> That's my head cannon now. <laughs> After we watch this film, it's definitely well, head cannon. Speaking of our two little droids and shorts, let's shift over to actually discussing the characters themselves. I'm going to say shorts is a generous word for that amount of material. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. Okay. Um, Tahei and Matsushi. My question is, and this is granted, I I only saw the film once. Are they different characters? No. No, they're not. Okay. Two halves of the same character? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I said to my friend when we're watching this thing, they bicker like two cats in the bag. And I feel like all we need to know is the name for the one bag that they're both in. <laughs> well, maybe we should just call them both Tahe because it's easier to say. <laughs> the dynamic of these two reminds me a lot of parenting siblings during the early parts of quarantine. As a parent <laughs> of twin boys, let me tell you what, I've noticed a lot of similarities and there were moments I just wanted to reach into the screen, grab them by their ears <laughs> and knock some sense into them. And there's, there's not even any real character growth there. I mean, they fight with each other over sometimes the simplest things. Uh, they end the film more or less as they started, just a little bit richer and maybe having learned nothing. Mm-hmm. Which actually and- I appreciated. I appreciate the fact that they ended up at the end exact, almost exactly as they started out because sometimes people just don't grow. I'm glad that they didn't have their moment where they changed and grew and became heroes. I'm super glad we did not have that um, because we're not watching a superhero origin story. If I want that, <laughs> I know where Tom Holland is when I when I need him. <laughs> and it's funny because George Lucas had actually compared their role in this party to raising teenagers. His words, George Lucas's words, not mine <laughs> as a parent of teenagers. Uh, I think uh, Kurosawa specifically... There's that moment where the at the beginning of the film when they first find the gold and Matsuchi is claiming, hey, I found these pieces, so I should get the two pieces and you get just one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then at the end of the film is reverse and Tahe saying, well, hey, I saw the horses first, so I get all the gold and you get just a little bit. <laughs> and this is a massive <laughs> amount of gold. I mean, yeah. this yeah. is three horses beasts of burden carrying all this gold oh, like he has no idea what he would do this is meant to rebuild a clan <laughs> yeah he doesn't right. have the scope but, to understand what to do but, with but it. this is exactly what brothers would do yes <laughs> yes exactly because it's it's the same conversation in reverse kurosawa was telling us specifically yeah these guys learn nothing mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> there was no growth and that's that's the point for them is that there is no growth the discussion they had at the end was slightly more generous, but they are not the wiser. Mm. Even at the very end, where they are brought before the princess and the general, and they're like, who's that guy? <laughs> Is that the general? Oh my gosh, it's the general. Look, it's me. Who are you? I, I'm the mute girl. Who are you? I'm the princess. Oh! <laughs> oh, that that girl that can obviously hear who was guarded by that lady in waiting with the rock. Uh, yes, I remember you. Yes. 
Okay, since we're here, I'm going to have to say it is uh, if you haven't seen the film, there is a scene in there that is like I didn't find it funny. I thought I found it really cringy because the princess mm -hmm. is asleep and they're drawing straws as to which one of these two guys is going to, as they say, like get lost for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Like you don't know what exactly they have planned for this. Who They don't realize the princess isn't actually mute or deaf. So they're planning to take advantage of yeah. them. Um, their plans are thwarted by a lady in waiting who basically the princess rescued from her, her slavery from the brothels. Uh, and so she is guarding the princess with a rock, like a massive It's, it's more like a small boulder that she's yeah. held above her head. And if these two guys even move a muscle, they will be crushed. This scene, my first thought was, wow, this just got a lot more cringy than I was expecting this movie to go. Uh, so there was the moment of toxic masculinity and this lady in waiting was the antidote. Um, and she was ready to rock their world. Anyway, <laughs> so I wanted to call out that scene because it was, as you said, it was super cringy. Yeah, not elevated even within the narrative of the film, but it was it was there. So yeah, that's that's these characters. They're they're not good people. No. Mm -mm. So having spoken of Yuki, let's talk about Princess Yuki. Um, one thing that we had said is that we don't have as rigid distinction in the West of of the class structure, and we had mentioned that Yuki was pretending to be mute and obviously not deaf i suppose but part of the thing is in their escape they have to pretend that she's she's some sort of servant or some sort of peasant but the problem is is that she can't open her mouth because the moment that she opens her mouth she will be exposed to somebody of of elevated status like she can't, she literally can't fake it anyone would see it and it's not it's not presented as a dig on her or her personality it's her her culture status and upbringing would I, is impossible to discuss. I saw it as her upbringing because other characters made a point. She's the only child to her father, who was the the nobleman, the ruler of the clan, and he didn't raise her as a daughter. He raised her as a son, which is why she stands the way she does. She walks the way she does. She always has that reed that she treats like a kind of a sword, hitting things, yeah. and practicing with it. The way she rides a horse. And also in her speech. And it's funny because we in the West have several stories where the prince and the pauper switch places. And the stories run as people that are plausibly making the role shift with the comedy being in the blunders that they make. But as Kurosawa presents this narrative, it's under a different set of assumptions. The princess could never pass as the pauper. Mm -hmm. And so she had to be made mute so she would never reveal herself. And even that was of limited success because she's got that imperious expression on her face the entire time. Uh, there's no mistaking her for somebody who doesn't feel superior yeah. to everybody I around mean, her. I mean, anyone from the highest samurai to the lowest peasant could take one look at those eyebrows and know, yeah, she's a noble woman. <laughs> yeah, she was actually given an Academy Award for the most serious eyebrows in a dramatic picture in 1959, <laughs> which was oddly enough a category back then. It, who was she up against? I don't know. I didn't make this up. Far <laughs> like, like I only built the lie out so far, people. Uh, Liz Taylor and 
<laughs> Liz Taylor was in there twice, one for her left eyebrow, one for her right. <laughs> um, though funny enough, in trying to construct the language for that award, I did find that um, Nighty Night Bugs uh, was awarded the Academy Award for the short picture. Uh, so Bugs Bunny did did get an Academy Award that year. Oh, that one is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> That's not relevant to Hidden Fortress. So anyway. <laughs> one scene that I did enjoy was toward the beginning of the film where they're discussing how they're going to have to sneak through enemy land uh, to get to safety. And the general is talking about how she might have to pretend to be a mute and how he did it. And of course, the idea of anyone telling her to shut up is... You know, <laughs> dangerous, very dangerous. But he decides, like, you know, while making eyes at the other servant, he's like, I once had to pretend I was a mute. It was grueling. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. It took stamina and strength and concentration. And he knows what he's doing. And the other servant knows what he's doing. But the princess also knows what he's doing. <laughs> that was uh, the scene I was referring to earlier because she has this expression on her face as she's standing behind him. And she's almost smiling but not quite mm -hmm. uh and you can see like right there oh she knows what he's up yeah. to <laughs> and she even calls him out i'm not taking your bait but i will let myself be fooled this time in the interest of our safety <laughs> that was brilliant she was actually the focus character in this film and it wasn't really revealed until the very end because she stated the theme at the end of the story instead of the beginning uh, normally with a movie, you you have some line at the beginning that tells you this is what this movie is going to be about. Um, but she gives that speech about experiencing the difference between her noble upbringing and the way that the people live. And when she gives that film, you, you suddenly remember the things that she has done through the past. Like, oh, that's why she was just quietly following R2 and 3PO instead of doing something to stop them. She wants to see how these people think. Hmm. You know, and you remember the fire festival and she's dancing and she's enjoying herself. Um, and suddenly that's not part of her disguise. That's, hey, this is how peasants have fun. Mm -hmm. And it is fun. It's one of the few times we see her facial expressions actually change. Yeah. The facade that she has put up begins to crack and we get to see the emotion underneath. And I thought it was really great putting that revelation at the end. So we see, oh, this was a story about her growth. She was the one that was was experiencing change in this movie. This makes me want to watch the film again now that I know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I had Lady Hawk. You had Hidden Fortress. The, the next Toho movie I watch will be a dinosaur versus a gorilla. <laughs> but really, it's about the gorilla's trajectory. It's seen through the lens of the lizard. <laughs> So, Rokuruda. Yes. So, in a Kurosawa film, you expect the noble samurai. And Mifuni does that better than almost anybody else. I don't think I saw him bend at the waist once. <laughs> <laughs> like, if he wants to pick something up, the earth bends up to meet him, is what happens. That's right. <laughs> As I was watching it the other night, no joke, the good friends who were staying with, one of them saw him on screen as he was standing there dramatically, which that's the only way he knows how to stand is dramatically. And she was like, dang, dim legs. <laughs> I told her his are the smoothest legs 
in that entire kingdom. Not because he shaves them. He keeps the hair away by sheer force of will. <laughs> <laughs> he just frowns at it and it goes away. In spite of the, the language and the cultural barriers, he really does project his emotions really well. I didn't have any trouble understanding him. Uh, he's got that, that Japanese uh, idealized reserve to him. And yet you still see his, his pain when he's talking about, or when other people are talking about his sister uh, and her death. She, by the way, we didn't mention, she was the decoy that was murdered in place of Princess Yuki. That went about the way it did in episode two of Star Wars. So Yeah. And so you see his pain, even though he's not expressing it like fully. So I think he's a, he's a tremendous actor. I actually saw more emotion in his eyes than I did anywhere else which is also indicative of early Hollywood. There were times, because of the, it was black and white, there were times that it made me think of like the golden age of cinema, back when most movies were silent, and they had to be very expressive with their face and with their body language and their eyes. And there were moments that his performance in particular, to me, hearkened back to that. You never saw any emotion in his voice, not a lot in his face, but there was some in his face, but there was a lot in his eyes. And like you said, Brian, it was never hard to know what he was feeling because he was able to express emotion in small little ways, which made it more dramatic and more sincere and earnest. Mm -hmm. And this character is representative of that romanticized samurai that you see in Japanese films, like we mentioned earlier, the, the way we romanticize the paladins of Charlemagne. The samurai get the same treatment in Japan. And yet Kurosawa is really careful to emphasize the humanity of the character. We do have this, this heroic samurai, larger-than-life figure that all of the, the soldiers are terrified of, and yet he allows mm -hmm. us to see Mifuni's performance and the way Kurosawa wrote him allows us to see his pain, to see the, the desperation that he has to save his clan and to save Yuki. Yep, through his stance and through his actions and his voice, he exudes authority. And someone who, it's not a question of if you're going to obey him. You are going to obey him. <laughs> I found that interesting is that when he does meet up with, our, uh, with those two droids, first he's following them, and then he sits among them, and then they're following him and obeying him. Complaining about it the entire time, yes. but they're still obeying. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and the one time that they talk back to him, like, who are you? You can't make it. He shoves them both in the water. Yeah. And after that, there's no question. I had a little bit of a uh, annoyance at first. I'm like, guys, don't ask. Who are you to boss us around? Just leave. This is the American <laughs> Western mindset of James. Like, just, just get out of there. But once again, I think this is a, a cultural thing we don't quite pick up on. No, no, no. He's the boss. And they call him boss several times. So we must follow now. Well, did we have anything else to say about Rokuruda or this film in general? Only that one of the official Japanese posters for this movie has got him on the front of it looking absolutely epic. So they captured him properly is what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Take a look at this dude right here and tell me that you wouldn't start digging a hole if he told you to. <laughs> oh, if he told me to, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a reason why they started following him and calling him boss, and that's because when he showed up, he just was. Mm -hmm. When I saw some of the other like original posters, you know, they've got him on there. He takes up the most room. The princess does, 
and a couple of other characters, but not our two peasants. They're they're nowhere to be seen on the poster. I'm like, well, that's why is that? And then after watching the movie, I'm like, oh, never mind. Now I know why they're not anywhere on the poster. Because people would not buy tickets. To watch <laughs> no, those they two would guys. not. <laughs> well, they're they're the ones holding the camera. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, will that wrap it up? Uh, not just for our characters, but overall for the Hidden Fortress? I think it does. Well, and that will also wrap up the final film for our historic fiction film club. Uh, I'm sure we'll have another film club um, figured out here soon. Yeah, we've got to make a decision now. Um, yeah, we do. So are we going to do a Robin Hood film club, a Robin Hood film club, or I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Oodle-lolly, oodle-lolly. Oodle. Golly, what a day. Uh, I think that that will take us to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, besides a, a hidden fortress in the mountains, how are we going to stay away from the advancing zombie horde? Well, I actually think that we should take some hints from Kurosawa and protect ourselves from zombies by holding up in some quiet, out-of-the-way place hidden from the view of all zombies. But we're also going to need to take uh, take an, another step to keep the undead occupied while we hide out, which is why we're going to also have to take notes from another writer-director, John Hughes, while we set up our <laughs> decoy house with a Home Alone <laughs> Christmas party full of cardboard cutouts to keep their attention. Once inside, they also, instead of tasty brain meats, they find a bunch of Kevin McAllister style traps inside to help thin out the herd and we'll stay quiet and out of the way while, while they enjoy their party. <laughs> this would actually make a really good movie. It's kind of like we had Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Now we have Home Alone and Zombies. Okay. <laughs> well, I can imagine in the uh, in the director's cut when he's being interviewed. Well, I was thinking about you know Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and then I thought, what if we did the Hidden Fortress and Zombies, but uh, we also include we, we throw to the face. we throw in Macaulay Culkin for fun. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Which side is he on? The zombies? Anyway, no, no, move it in, move it on. <laughs> CG 100,000 uh, Macaulay Culkins into this, all with various states of decay. This could be this could be a win. This could be a real win. Well, I think that is going to wrap it up this episode. I want to thank you all for listening in. Uh, make sure that you check us out online at geekatarms.com, at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And once again, Mike, what's our Twitter? We are Arms Geek on Twitter. Also, make sure that you uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. We are also on Podchaser and Podbean. The reviews actually do help us because the more that you rate and review, the more likely it is that other people, other listeners will find our podcast. So if you do like the show, it really does help us a lot. Uh, so we would appreciate any reviews that you could give us. Absolutely. So we assume, have we ever been rated or reviewed? Uh, yes, we have been rated and we have been reviewed. And we have not been found wanting. <laughs> <laughs> and before we make this podcast any longer with more movie references, friends, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. 
For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. One moment. Sure. What? Leave that in. <laughs> Dog has lots to say. Come here. He hasn't been given his time on the mics. We need to have an episode of just James's dog talking to your cat. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Get the hedgehog involved.